This lecture is on mechanical circulatory support. This is not going to be on any of your exams for this course. However, I did want to give you the opportunity to see and evaluate some of the different forms of mechanical assist device that we have for children with respiratory and cardiac failure. My goals for this lecture is really to talk about the history of mechanical circulatory support, as well as the rationale for placing a child on one of these devices and to give you some of the options that we have available. So starting back in the early 1960s, there were initial attempts to place patients on ventricular assist device, but it wasn't until the end of the 1960s or 1966 where Dr. DeBakey was successful with the first VAD. In the 1970s, we saw ECMO introduced to our pediatric population, predominantly our neonates who uh, were, were suffering from respiratory failure. There was an introduction of balloon pumps um, aortic balloon pumps for our pediatric populations, but we did realize that the distensibility of their vessels just wasn't accommodating for this type of device, and we don't see it used hardly very often in the pediatric patient. In the early 1990s, um, the Berlin Heart was introduced to allow both pediatric and adult patients um, an opportunity for a bridge to transplant. And in 2000, in the early 2000, uh, that machine was brought here to the United States and at the University of Florida, we were the first ones to place a Berlin heart in a patient in 2006. And at that time, of all time, there were only ever 500 uh, patients who received a heart transplant. And now at the end of 2019, the University of Florida has placed 272 successful pediatric heart, heart transplants. Our indications for mechanical cardiac support include cardiac arrest, and the inability to come off bypass, which is the most obvious. But oftentimes, it's the subtle changes that we see in our patients, the decline in their cardiac output, the poor appetite due to decreased blood flow to their mesenteric system, the increasing metabolic acidosis, the decreasing mixed venous saturations and poor uh, urine output. We do have some hard contraindications for not placing someone on a mechanical circulatory support, and that's due to extreme prematurity, irreversible multi-organ failure, incurable malignancy, and significant central nervous system damage, which may, become, which may have occurred from a stroke or some type of other damage. The key thing with placing someone on, on mechanical circulatory support is how fast you can get it done. We know that with ECMO, we can deploy it very quickly. However, to place someone on a ventricular assist device, often that requires some planning, taking the patient to the operating room, opening up their chest, and then putting in the device, which can take some time. Our adult counterparts are way ahead of the game on this for, um, compared to the pediatric populations because they have more experience. They have the most advances on devices that they can place, and they often opt to do early implantation compared to the pediatric population. Things to consider when we're using these type of devices is to, where does our end goal? Are we bridging the transplant where we know someone has an irreversible heart failure or are we bridging them to a possible recovery or potential recovery? Again, here's a nice little breakdown of the different devices that we offer and what, the, what, the, what each one can do for your patient, such as a bridge to recovery, pulmonary support, or cardiac support. The, again, the fastest deployment would be our ECMO um, circuits. 
Here's another little diagram, a decision tree to, to make a decision whether you're gonna go on ECMO versus a ventricular assist device. And again, is our plan for recovery versus transplantation. So let's take a look at some of the devices that we have available to us. Here's a nice little picture of an uh, ECMO circuit at the bedside of a patient in an ICU. When we look at ECMO, again, extensively used in the pediatric population. However, today we're seeing more and more adult units use some form of ECMO or some form of mechanical circulatory support to bridge them either from their insult, whether it's cardiac or respiratory, or in preparation to bridge them to transplantation. Um, again, initially we saw this in, in neonates with respiratory failure, but now we see this in a wide variety of, of different patient populations. In fact, we most recently had a patient um, that was suffering from COVID-19 with an MSIC type pitcher. We placed them on ECMO for several days to allow their heart to recover, and then we were able to successfully take them off. Some centers are using eCPR as a form of resuscitation for patients who have undergone a witness cardiac arrest in the hospital. But in any case, before we think about ECMO, one of the most crucial calculations that we will evaluate is the oxygenation index. Here I've placed that formula here for you again. And if your oxygen, oxygenation index is usually anywhere between 35 to 40, most often the surgical team will place the patient on ECMO. It requires a, a great deal of equipment and you have to determine if you're doing VV ECMO, which is predominantly used for respiratory complications, or AV ECMO, which is used for both cardiac and respiratory complications. The circuit contains a bladder, a circulatory pump, whether that's centrifugal or roller clamp. It has a membrane oxygenator, heat exchanger. We often have to place these patients, or not often, always have to place these patients on systemic anticoagulation and we do need to provide them some, some degree of sedation, at least, if at very least, in the beginning stages of placing the patient on the circuit. Some of your advantages is it provides, it can provide both cardiac and pulmonary support. It can support both ventricles or just the failing ventricle. It's rapidly deployable. We can place this in a versatility of different places. So peripherally, we can do in the femoral or the cervical area, or if we need to, we can take the patient to the operating room and do it transthoracically. And it can be pretty much used for any patient. And our newer technologies allow us to provide smaller circuits so that we can transport these patients either within the facility that they're, they're being um, treated in or transporting them to a, level, a higher level of care at another facility. Some of your disadvantages, of course, you can have bleeding and thrombosis, infection, organ failure. Um, oftentimes, these patients do require a lot of blood products. They can have a degree of decreased mobility. However, many centers are using early mobility with these patients because they know that they may be on the circuit for an extended period of time, and we don't want to have these patients um, regress in care while they're lying in the bed. So they're often moving these patients, walking them. In fact, you can probably Google search um, a few different pictures of children that are on ECMO circuits walking around in their ICUs. The other disadvantage is that ECMO probably has a limited uh, time that we can use them, mostly days to weeks. We're not gonna place a patient on this for months and months and months or even as long as a year. 
unlike some of our other devices that we can place someone on for an extended period of time. This is an older um, This is an older um, graph here, um, like in the early 90s, predominantly we were using ECMO for our respiratory patients. But as you can see, as we moved into the 2000s, we're using it for more and more different um, indications such as cardiac um, or respiratory failure. Now let's move on to some of our centrifugal pumps. The Centromag is probably the most common that we'll see in the older population. Um, it does require an external cannulation. It's used for both bi a biventricular or single ventricle support. Um, you can support, um, you can use it for short to intermediate use. And essentially what it is, it's a, it's a round cone type of device that has magnets in it that spin the blood in a centrifugal type uh, motion that actually takes blood from the patient and places it back to them. You can also put inside that circuit a membrane oxygenator so that you can also not only pump blood for the patient, but you can also help with CO2 removal and oxygenation as well. The PDMAG is just the pediatric version of the exact same device. It works exactly the same, it's just on a smaller scale. And we use, and down here at the bottom of the screen, you can see the different flow rates that we can use from both the Centromag to our pediatric population. The advantages, you don't need an oxygenator. You can necessarily just use it to help pump the blood. Um, there's a low priming volume. There's less blood exposed to the inner lining of the tubing. There's a decreased need for anticoagulation. There's less hemolysis. Um, you do get adequate decompression of the ventricles to allow it to rest. It's easy to transport these patients and relatively inexpensive. Some of our long-term circulatory support devices, this is the Berlin Heart. It's a laptop-based unit. Um, for every one patient that you have, you have to have two units on site. So not only do you place one on the patient, but you have to have a backup that, that's available. Um, it is a very heavy unit, um, weighs several hundred pounds. Um, you do have a manual hand pump that you can use if you're moving in between uh, machines. Um, but oftentimes, when we do our transfer from machine to machine, it's usually pretty quick. One of the disadvantages of this machine, it does have a relatively short battery life when you're not plugged in. I believe it's about 45 minutes and it's a conditioned battery. So if you're plugging it in and unplugging it frequently, that 45 minutes becomes shorter and shorter over time. This is a nice picture of the cannulas being placed into a patient. This patient has both a right ventricle and left ventricular VAD um, placed in the operating room. You can do with the Berlin Heart either single VAD or biventricular VAD. There's two different modes, either synchronous or asynchronous. When it's synchronous, this means on the biventricular system that both VADs, um, both the right and left side, are filled and emptied at the same time. In asynchronous modes, and this really depends on the child's chest cavity and how much space they have, they may have to do an asynchronous where one fills as the other one empties. Um, to allow for the full, uh, full uh, empty and fill for good cardiac output. Um, again, when you look at the settings uh, on, the, on the laptop, there'll be settings for both the right side and the left side. The systole and diastole and the percentage of systole all depend or all related to the VAD itself, not necessarily to the patient's own blood pressure. 
they're set to the VAD um, to allow it for its complete um, fill and its complete emptying. There's a nice little picture here of what the VAD looks like. Um, it is a pneumatic postal tile pediatric VAD. Um, the pump is generally translucent, which allows us to look and to take a to look and evaluate the blood inside the circuit itself. Um, and this allows us to take a peek into this, see if there's any type of thrombin formations, any clot formations, anything that could become a potential issue down the road. It is heparin coated to prevent some of the blood sticking to it. But again, over time, you may, um, over time, there may be a requirement to change these out. Again, here's another diagram of what it looks like inside the patient's chest. Again, with that VAT assessment, the nurses are trained to actually look at every crease, crack, nook, and cranny inside that red um, blood-filled um, chamber just to make sure that we're evaluating for any fibrin deposits or clot formations. The advantage is you can, apply, you can have a patient on this for long-term support. It's used without the need for mechanical ventilation, so these patients are highly mobile, um, and they actually get well very quickly. And oftentimes we tend to forget how sick these patients really are because they really do make a significant recovery. They can in some institutions, they can transition outside of the ICU to more specialized cardiac units. And there is just a there is a more lower dose anticoagulation requirement for this device. The disadvantage is you can have thrombo and thromboembolic complications such as stroke. Um, they can, you know, can be complicated with infection. And there is a significant cost, um, significantly more so because you have to keep multiple machines on site. Next, we'll talk about the syncardia, which is the total artificial heart. Um, and again, you can see the progression, how big these machines were just 10 to 20 years ago. So to the far left of your screen, you'll see this very large machine, which was in fact the size of the machine that we first received here at Shands when we did our first Syncardia patient back in 2014, I believe. Um, now there's much newer machines where they're much, much, much smaller, much more portable, and much, much easier to use. And they even have um, a portable machine where the patient can actually uh, throw it over their shoulder, almost kind of like a handbag as, as it's hooked up to their de um, device. So they can become more mobile and sometimes even go outside of the hospital um, if they need to. Again, the Syncardia total artificial heart is exactly what it is. They core out both of the ventricles and they put in these mechanical ventricles into the patient's chest. Um, they do have a limited stroke volume. Um, they, also, they also work on the premise of a partial fill and a complete empty. And the way that works is you don't wanna completely fill the diaphragm but you definitely want a complete ejection to make sure you get a good cardiac output and you don't allow time for blood clots to form within the chamber. The Syncardia will have much higher heart rates or much higher rates on it, right around 120 to 140 beats per minute. And that's because the ventricles don't stretch like our ventricles do with Starling's principle. So we, the patients that are on Syncardia are a lot like our younger pediatric patients that, require, that rely on their heart rate to maintain their cardiac output, not so much the stroke volume, because that is really fixed. So 
if a patient becomes febrile or if they have changes in um, their hemodynamics, um, they may feel some of those effects because their heart rate, the heart rate and their stroke volume can generally are fixed on these machines. And sometimes we can increase the rate to help them overcome those issues and then bring them back down to their baseline. Things to consider when using the syncardia, you cannot have any central lines that go into the heart. Um, they can create complications of the complete emptying, or in some cases, they may affect the valves within, these, um, within this device. Um, uh, they do prefer left upper extremity picks. They require them to be done under fluoroscopy to make sure they're not entering in the heart. Midline position is the most, is what they recommend. Um, and again, you want to try to keep these patients more on the drier side because you're really trying to control how much volume is entering those chambers and you don't want anyone to be fluid overloaded. Um, there is no, there's the nice thing with this is because there's no um, ventricles there, there's no real need to use inotropes because you're not going to get the effect that you would expect for someone who has normal ventricles or has ventricles in place. And we manage their systemic vascular resistance through vasoconstrictors or vasodilators. Again, these patients, um, you, you want to minimize how much blood products you give back to them because of the mechanical um, device that's in place. It can cause a degree of hemolysis. And we'll often let these patients have hematocrits somewhere between 18 and 20, which is significantly lower for most of our patient populations. There, um, for safety things you want to consider, um, you don't want the ventricular assist device to compress on the um, in, inferior vena cava. So when they're implanting these devices, they do very careful measurements of the AP diameter of the chest to make sure this device fits. So when I've seen this device placed, I've only seen it in patients that are much older, usually your older adolescents, um, because the younger patients with the smaller chest diameters, this may not be a best fit for them. The other thing to consider too is when you reposition the patient, that the bad inside their chest could compress the IVC, so you might need to readjust them if you do see changes in their hemodynamics. Again, some of the advantages is that it's a great bridge to transplant. I believe the first patient we placed on this type of device was on it for almost a full year. Um, you do remove the ventricles, so there's no more arrhythmias, no ventricular thrombus formations, and little, there's no use for, no need for inotropes. Some of the disadvantages is we don't do a lot of these um, because of the nature of the size of, uh, because of the fit for the patients and oftentimes the degree of the equipment required to use these machines. Um, there's just limited user experience. Um, you're not able to visualize the VADs like you are with the Berlin Heart. So that is definitely another disadvantage. And they do have similar risks such as stroke, infection, and bleeding. Now moving on to some of the newer VADs that we're starting to see on the market are the axial flow ventricular assist devices. Um, one that probably made the most um, popularity in the adult population is the HeartMate 2. And as you can see, there is a tube that's placed in the apex of the vent left ventricle. And then there's kind of like a conduit that goes in um, to um, the aorta that actually kind of pulls blood out of the ventricle and then pumps it to the system. This device is also very portable, so patients can go home on these devices. Um, what looks like a gunslinger's um, straps that the patient has on is, are really two batteries, or one battery and the, the manifold that the patient uses um, to carry around with them.
these pumps create flow by a rotational impeller. So the way I kind of visualize this is kind of like the prop on a boat. It basically creates that turbine pulling blood in one direction and then pushing it out another. Um, it runs at much higher revolutions, greater than 8,000 RPMs. Um, and it's the only continuous flow left ventricular device. And I believe there are probably a few more on the market now um, that are allowed to be bridged to transplant and to destination therapy. And destination therapy meaning the patient will just have the VAD for the rest of their life until they pass away, um, meaning that they probably won't get a transplant. The advantage is that they're small, there's no valves, uh, there's limited exposure of the blood, um, low blood priming, there's low energy and low cost. Another one that's out there is the DeBakey Child VAD. Um, it's a smaller version of the adult size one, allows for much smaller body surface areas. Um, it does have limited pediatric use due to the incidence of thromboembolism, um, but with the changes in anticoagulation, um, there may have opportunity to use these more often. The one that I found to be the most interesting that's come out in the last five to 10 years is the hardware device. And this, this is a very small ventricular assist device. As you can see, it fits inside the palm of this gentleman's hand in the picture here. And it's placed directly into the apex of the ventricle. And again, it has that conduit that pumps blood directly to the aorta. It also works on um, that uh, uh, centrifugal or a continuous flow magnet that's inside the vat itself. Um, it, again, it can allow for up to 10 liters per minute of blood flow. Um, often it's pretty much placed in the left ventricle, um, although I think they can have the opportunity for biventricular um, devices being placed. And this actually gives the patient probably the most mobility of all of our vets. Again, they can wear one of those harnesses that has their battery packs on them. They have their manifold where they can uh, make the primary, the healthcare team can actually make changes to the VAD if needed. All right, this concludes my lecture. Again, this is not testable material. This is just for your knowledge. So I hope you enjoyed the lecture. Um, if you have any questions or concerns, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. All right, take care.